Hello, this is One Person Inspiration, where we explore the untold and overlooked stories behind the success of students and alumni research. I'm Jennifer. And I'm Maisha. This podcast is generously supported by the Heart House Good Ideas Fund. Today's guest is David Baroto, an engineering science infrastructure 2018 plus PEY graduate from the University of Toronto. As he describes himself on his Medium blog, which we'll share in the show notes, he's an infrastructure nerd, global development nut, and social impact practitioner. David, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, Maisha. Hi, Jennifer. Thanks for having me and great to be here. Um, yeah, my name is David, uh, born and raised in South Africa to parents who are from the Democratic Republic of Congo, and I moved to Canada in 2010, so about 12 years ago now. Um, studied infrastructure engineering at the University of Toronto, uh, but I've always been interested in, in global development, and that's kind of what's guided my, my career so far. Um, been heavily involved with Engineers Without Borders Canada, which is kind of where I got my start at the chapter at U of T, uh, and did a fellowship with them uh, in 2017, right at the start of my PY of professional experience here, uh, and then went to Uganda with them, uh, with, with another organization, right after graduating in 2019. Then um, after that, I moved to Copenhagen to work for what was my dream job at the time, the United Nations Office for Project Services, as an infrastructure and project management analyst. Uh, and then now I'm currently in the UK um, completing my master's degree at the University of Cambridge in an MPhil for engineering for sustainable development. Uh, so as you can see, one word that I probably should add to my bio is nomad. I move around a lot and bounce from place to place. Uh, but yeah, always looking for the next full opportunity. Wow, that's, Thank that's you. amazing. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're excited to learn to learn all, all about these through, um, through our conversation. But before we wanted to kind of take you back to, um, I guess, 2014 and maybe a little bit before that on, how did you end up choosing U of T engineering? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like I said, I, I moved to Canada in, in 2010. And when my family moved here, we moved to Yorkton, Saskatchewan, a super small town of about 17,000 people at the time. I'm sure it's grown since then. Uh, and then from there, I did my high school in Victoria, B.C., and when it came time to look into for universities, in conversation with my dad, who's an engineer himself, I landed on engineering uh, after thinking of actual science, business, um, all of these other fields. And so then came the question of where. And when I looked at Ontario, U of T and Waterloo were the main places I was looking at. And it was a trip over here uh, that kind of made my final decision. Uh, we did a we visited Toronto, did a campus tour, uh, and just walking around the city, uh, seeing how lively and vibrant it was, um, and then obviously you know seeing the campus itself and seeing the university and the reputation it had as well, uh, just made me made Toronto the place I wanted to spend four plus years of my life uh, studying, and so that, it was that it was that trip, uh, and 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 just being in Toronto itself, I think that that made me choose U of T above everything else mm-hmm. what about just engineering like yeah engineering <laughs> and also infrastructure and engineering science yeah yeah exactly so engineering it largely came from my dad if I'm mm-hmm. being honest so my, my dad is a civil engineer himself water engineer to be specific uh and I like to think of my dad and I as the same person born about 20 years apart we look alike, um, we sound alike, we think a lot, we think the same, 
and so because of that, he's my dad's someone I look up to and I value his advice uh, greatly. Um, mm-hmm. So when I was a kid, I was always, the, the two things I was interested in were money and math. Um, mm-hmm. how can, and, and so because of that business or even like, I think actual science of the field that I was very interested in as a kid. Uh, but speaking to my dad, he said, you know, you're, you're a super smart guy. You and I are, are similar. You can do engineering and succeed in it and have that as a foundation to launch into any other career that you want afterwards. Yes. And so pursue a career or pursue your undergrad in engineering. And then after that, you know, you're free to do whatever you want. And it was really that. And so that was really the impetus for, for me to go into engineering. I think without him as that role model and that example, uh, I might not or probably wouldn't have come into this field. Um, and why, why infrastructure? Again, just be, you know, because of my, my dad. I think I'd originally came into anxiety looking at the math, stats, and finance option. Again, you know, money and math, the mm. two things I was interested in. Uh, but it was Civ 102 with Professor Collins that I think swayed me towards infrastructure. Uh, that and the fact that I think on a very macro perspective, I like things that I can see, things that I can visualize and um, conceptualize very easily. And so some of the other NXI options that were more on a micro level, like the bio option or the, I guess the nano option, which was just being phased out at that time, didn't mm. appeal to me as much. Uh, so infrastructure being something that you know is, is very macro, you can see, and also the, the impact that has on people and how people use and interact with infrastructure is very clear as well. Awesome. Thank you. That was very detailed and well thought out. (laughs) (laughs) When you thought about, uh, like you're in your program and now you're thinking, okay, where am I going to spend my efforts? And I think one of the things that I actually found, maybe Jennifer, and you can relate to this, um, is I felt really overwhelmed by university initially is because I realized most of the things that I was seeing and that were being offered to me as opportunities, um, I had some minimal interest in them and I didn't know how Mm -hmm. to choose. So it comes to um, like, what is the, how did you find a a problem? Um, And and for you, this would be global development. How did you choose to focus on that, the problems within global development and your experiences? Um, And how did you prioritize this against other things? Like what was your journey through that? Mm -hmm. Uh, Great question. I think for me, I was fortunate coming into university that I already knew exactly what I wanted to spend my free time doing. Um, I, I came into U of T already interested in, in global development and where that mm-hmm. stemmed from, again, from my dad. Uh, when, when I was a young kid growing up in South Africa, one of the, the sentences or the values that my dad imbued in me is that you should never forget where you come from. And so for him, what this meant is never forgetting his home and his roots in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where him and my mom were born and grew up and did the majority of their schooling. And so for me, when I moved to Canada, what that meant is to never forget my roots in South Africa, never forget my roots in Congo. And and, and as you know, my thinking around global development evolved, I really took a pan-African approach to development. And so thinking about the development of the continent as a whole and how working in one country or benefiting one country on the continent might benefit others and you know, facilitate uh, the entire development of the continent. And so with that, you know, in, in high school, um, I was looking for opportunities to, to engage in global development. I was involved in like some local uh, groups and, and charities and organizations that were offered on uh, at my school. 
And coming into university, I knew that that's something I wanted to do as well. So when I knew I was going into engineering, I remember it was one afternoon, um, maybe in the summer, right before I was supposed to start at U of T, I was just browsing through the U of T clubs pages, uh, looking for global development related clubs and Engineers Without Borders, you know, popped up as mm -hmm. one of them. Looked at their, the U of T's website, looked at the, the EWB Canada's website. And so I showed up on campus already knowing what club I wanted to join. Uh, and I, you know, it was second day, my second day on uh, campus, the, the Tuesday of Frost Week when it was clubs fair, went directly to the engineer. Oh my God. Canada <laughs> uh, met, a man on a mission. A man on a mission. Um, I met a lovely individual by the name of Quinn Conlon. And, and you know, you'll hear this commonly across a lot of PWB stories. The, mm. the person that tapped them, the tapped you on the shoulder, so to speak, uh, mm. and, and invited you into the door uh, to EWB. So for me, that person was Quinn Conlon. Uh, she told me all about EWB, all about how their approach was different, how, you know, they saw aid and development as it was currently being done as broken and how you know a new approach a systems thinking approach was needed to you know, really tackle the issues of poverty and inequality in the world today and you know from there went to their general meeting from the general meeting went to the youth engagement meeting which is a portfolio that Quinn was leading uh, mm. and from there just my EWB journey uh, uh, took off from there and so the, my interest in global development, I, I was lucky again going into U of T knowing that that's what I wanted to do and yeah. having found a club beforehand to, to, to know where to start. Um, and that just really came from uh, a, a deep desire in myself to, to be in that space based on my own upbringing. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned the word, I think, system thinking, where that's mm -hmm. how, can you expand a little bit on that and like what that is? Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, it's it's one of the favorite buzzwords of all EWB or <laughs> systems thinking. Uh, so I'd, I'd be happy to kind of explain that a little bit. Uh, essentially, it's the way development is done, at least has been done in the past, is to take a problem and compartmentalize it into one small narrow view um, of a problem that can then be solved by a simple solution, be it you know an asset a piece of infrastructure, uh, giving someone or a group of people money. Uh, and then, you know, once that solution has been delivered, kind of pack up and leave and, you know, dust your hands, tap yourselves on the back and celebrate a good day's work. Mm -hmm. But the thing that that's missing is then what is the impact of that solution on the long term? And as well, what is the impact of that solution on other people in this system? Um, that, you know, maybe are outside of, of who you interacted with. And so that, that's where system thinking comes in. It's to like take a broader macro bird's eye view approach and understanding, you know, in, in this ecosystem, in this place where we're trying to work and, and where we're trying to improve, who are all of the actors at play? Who are the, the citizens who are going to benefit from the solution? who is like, maybe there's a government that's there and is responsible for providing services to these citizens, but for some reason, isn't able to do it themselves. Mm -hmm. Maybe there are NGOs that are already existing and working there. Uh, maybe there's a, a private sector that isn't as you know, robust or isn't as solid uh, and isn't able to provide market-based solutions. So you're mm -hmm. finding all of the different actors, all of their different roles, how they interact with each other, 
so that then when you one are proposing a solution, you can say, okay, if I if I do this, this is how all of these people in the system will react. And when they react this way, this is how it'll impact the ability of my solution to last in the long term. And then taking it a step further, before you even think about the solution, you know, mapping something in the form of the system allows you to really understand the problem itself. What are the yeah. different actors and the relationships that are causing this problem to persist? And where's the biggest lever or leverage point that you know, if I address this, if I fix this issue, will have a cascading effect across the system, promote mm-hmm. change as far and wide as possible and change that will last. And so systems thinking for me and that, you know, looking back at my journey with PWB, that was the biggest, you know, light bulb aha moment for mm-hmm. me in terms of how my thinking of development has evolved, uh, taking a, a really narrow approach, which was really dominant in the development field for a long time and, and still is in, in many ways, broadening that out to look a, to take a broader perspective and see how everything interacts together so that our solutions can be more informed. Thank you. That's very that's very nice. I think as an indie, I really appreciate this kind of definition. Um, oh yeah. I take courses of it. <laughs> so seeing people just appreciate it and give give an explanation of like the justice it deserves all that all that stuff I just like it oh a hundred percent and I think it's so far different from I think how engineers are traditionally taught to think yeah because you know there, there, there's there's different kinds of problems in, in engineering that you know there's the bigger maybe social problems that you kind of have to figure out and flesh out and then mm. come up with a solution to which system thinking is very adept to addressing but mm-hmm. then i think the, the the problems that more engineers are used to thinking about and maybe more comfortable with are the narrow technical problems where it's okay we have yeah. a we have a bridge that needs to be built in this location let's assess the the site conditions and design the bridge to fit here there's a part that needs to fit into this airplane and it's a very very narrow set of conditions and i just need to design this for there mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the, that being the, the traditional way that engineers were, were taught to solve problems, you know, you can understand why then when a, a bunch of engineers who were passionate about global development then went into this context, started doing the same thing. You can understand why that was their natural instinct, uh, but it's just that it turns out that that, you know, problem solving approach doesn't work in, in this environment and in this context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I've read your medium actually, and I know there's an article where you talk about um, what you learned from the World Vision Social Innovation Challenge from, from losing it and your experience yeah. interviewing and um, this one key question that you were asked, and I think it reframed, it was a big reframing moment for you. And it's in your lifetime, there are probably one or two big problems that you will get to tackle. What are the challenges that you want to take on? So when you think about that now, um, is there like, do you, do you feel like you have more specificity on that? Um, because at the time, I think you were working on um, like plastic waste solutions yeah, in um, Southeast South Asia. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that, that, that's a great question. Um, so the, I, I, I feel like I, that, that's a question that I ask myself, you know, if not every day, like at least once a month, just very, very periodically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's a, it's a question that everyone who's trying to work in the space of global development should be asking themselves because, you know, while it can be a general career guiding question, 
when it comes to this field where the problems are so messy, the people who are impacted by these problems are kind of the most vulnerable uh, and the potential for impact is so great. Mm -hmm. uh, this question becomes even more important. And so to me, the more and more I'm refining it, you know, it, it came down to, to two things of what am I interested in global mm -hmm. development? What am I good at or where is my field of expertise starting to be more infrastructure? And so okay. where I'm going now is, you know, how can I, and the question that's been guiding my career is where do infrastructure and development fit together mm -hmm. and where's the best place that I can do that? And what's that starting to look like for me is understanding that, you know, in, in a lot of the cases, infrastructure is at the purview of the governments, um, mm -hmm. be it local or national to uh, you know, plan, prioritize and deliver the infrastructure. But a lot of these countries, a lot of these governments face significant challenges in doing that being you know, the, the systems aren't in place, the policies, um, regulations, and all of that aren't in place. The capacity, it might not be there. And, and as well, the, the money and the financing to get these projects mm -hmm. through. How many times has the TTC been rebuilt, rebuilt with, with plans <laughs> over and over again? <laughs> and, and, and it's crazy then, because I, I think even with, the, even with the TTC, right, it's like, and, and, you know, from my perspective, the, the TTC itself is, is functioning. It kind of goes back. I'm, actually, I'm not sure if I said this while we were recording or while we weren't, but it, it comes back to taking a system that's 90% and making it 95 to 100% effective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think while you know, I use the TTC for five years, maybe not as much as other people because I live downtown close to campus, but, you know, while it has its challenges on a foundational level, it is pretty functional. Mm -hmm. There are many places that don't have functioning public transportation systems. Right. Or people, if they're overcrowded or unsafe for women, especially like I'm from Bangladesh and mm -hmm. uh, a woman can't take the bus because something might happen to her if she takes the bus. Exactly. And that's and, scary. And, and, and in a lot of these cases as well, they're like living in Nairobi for, uh, for the four months that I did. The, mm -hmm. They have a really effective public transportation system there, but it's actually, it's not even, it's not a public transportation system. It's an informal transportation system. Mm -hmm. um, and there, there are very interesting challenges there around, you know, should the government take over the system and what would that look like for all of the people who are currently operating their matatus or like kind of mini, uh, mini taxis. And it's the, the service is working there, but there is like the lack of a structure underneath it prevents mm -hmm. it from being you know developed in such a way that it can be more like regulated and scaled and yes yeah. exactly and so the, the the challenges are different and so mm -hmm. you know look so it's like looking at places where that infrastructure is in there figuring out how you can build it or looking at places where it's there but maybe it's not built in the best way so how do you structure change to get it into a form that it can then be um, optimized and, and, and improved and, and made a lot more effective. Uh, so for me, when it comes down to the question of what's that one challenge that I want to tackle in my mm -hmm. frame that I want to dedicate my career to, it's looking more and more like, how can I support and enable governments to better plan and deliver their infrastructure um, to meet the needs of their, uh, their societies and their constituents?
specifically in low and middle income countries. So I had, um, as a part of my TP324 course, uh, we were talking all about like activist engineering and engineering to help and how can we actually use our skills for the best way possible. And um, we watched this TED talk by David Damberger and he, I think he was a part of EWB, I don't know, nationally, but at some level, um, but he talked about what happens when NGO admits failure, um, kind mm-hmm. of on the, on the ethos of EWB publishing their failure reports every year. Um, so others can learn from them. Um, so we don't like perpetuate the same problems just in different nodes of our networks. Um, and so he talks about this interesting thing with, I don't know if it was him or I learned in the course, but um, the difference between often like not-for-profit work or charity work where maybe there's no accountability by serving a consumer. Um, we're not like designing, we're not designing for uh, with the, like there's a little different, like the responsibility isn't there as strongly as, you know, we learned about BioLite in the first year design course, ESP or Engineering Strategies and Practices 1. Um, and BioLite, it was actually a consumer company. And what they would do is they realized there's this hugely underserved issue in developing countries where there was black, there were a lot of black carbon emissions in households because they were, um, they were produced that their, their ovens were, their stoves were just, were kind of like outside or inside the huts and um, on like open fires. And what they did was they did user research and they said, okay, we're going to sell you these stoves. And they also sold them in, in um, like North America and Western countries, but because they served um, their their customers in like India and South Asia and Southeast Asia as their customers, they were able to produce a far better product that was actually used mm-hmm. and was appreciated by the people there and um, had like a lot of feasibility and they actually came back and they improved on it because those people appreciated it. Mm-hmm. I, I think I know exactly the the TED talk that you're talking about in that. Yeah, there's a there's a diagram in there. As yes, well. I I was trying to pull it up. It, <laughs> it, you know, I couldn't find it. Like governments are directly responsible to their constituents. If you don't meet their needs, you get voted out. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the private sector and business are directly accountable to their consumers. If you don't design something that meets their needs, they won't buy it. You go out of business. Mm-hmm. The aid system is directly accountable to their donors, mm-hmm. not the constituents. Oh, if yes, you don't okay. If your donors, you lose money. But if you don't meet the needs of your constituents, there's no one to hold you accountable because, and this is what happens a lot, as long as you, you know, fudge your numbers, you tell your story in a certain way, mm-hmm. highlight all the good stuff, kind of bury away all the stuff that you're doing wrong, mm-hmm. your donors will still be happy. You can carry on doing what you're doing, even though you haven't met the needs of your beneficiaries yes so that's where the power of admitting failure comes and at least you know from an ewb standpoint and from an aid standpoint and in in the development sector and this is really what they're trying to push it's we we need to you know fix this whole accountability issue we need to make sure that we're having at the end of the day impact on the people that we're trying to serve and in order to do that we need to show that being true about your mistakes so you can learn from them and improve mm-hmm. upon the impact that you're having isn't as risky as you think. And in fact, mm-hmm. it's beneficial um, because your your donors won't, you know, they won't pull all of their funding from you mm-hmm. as, as you might think. And you can actually use your failures to show how you're improving your services and improving your impact uh, on the people that you intend to serve. Uh, and so yeah, it, that's a huge, huge part of EWB's uh, ethos. And I think for me, it's 
both on an, an, an organizational level and the aid level, but I think on a personal level as well, it's something that resonated with me a lot because mm-hmm. even, even on an individual level, I think there's so many issues uh, that each of us go through on a day-to-day basis, but in the absence of talking about them and making mm-hmm. them public, we all think that we're going through them in isolation and aren't able to then, you know, one, empathize with each other and then to learn from each other's mistakes and, and mm-hmm. learn how to deal with them. And so in that way, you, you kind of get into an echo chamber where you might be getting into your own head uh, or just like, you know, preventing yourself from, from growing because that, you know, the, the inability to admit failure is holding you back. And that, that's something I've gone through personally um, in my journey at, at, at university specifically mm-hmm. as well. Uh, but, you know, the power, the power of admitting failure and not for the purpose of saying, oh, I, you know, I failed, but look at where I am now, but like, just saying boldly, flatly, I failed. There's there's stuff I'm going to learn from this. There's stuff I'm going to get right. out of it. But first and foremost, I failed. Yes. Uh, let's let's see how we can use this. And I think the the other interesting point on that as well that that was also raised in the podcast was you know the the different expectations that we have in the aid sector compared to like say the the venture capitalist uh, industry where if I'm an investor <laughs> in a VC firm. I don't know what the typical success rate is, like you know, maybe 4%, percent right. Most of it is down the drain. <laughs> Most of your money goes down the drain, mm-hmm. but you get that one solution that you know takes off, makes a ton of money, and then recoups all of your earlier investments. Why don't we think of the same, why don't we think of the aid sector in the same way? Uh, mm-hmm. Why aren't we allowed to fail and innovate in the same way in aid compared to how we are in, in business? Right. Uh, I think... I don't know how much that has changed or how much that view has changed. I think there still are, you know, many organizations, I think organizations all, all over the place in, in, in the sector are still fearful of, you know, the impact of uh, their failures in losing money and reporting to their donors in a certain way, because at the end of the day, the, the donors have the power in the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not sure how much that has changed, but it, it needs to change. In this in this talk about failure, do you do you have any failures that you've kind of reflected on as those learning experiences that <laughs> really were kind of a travesty, but at least they were you learned from them and there was something better that came out of them? The entirety of second year anxiety. Oh no, I should be more fair. Second <laughs> semester of second year anxiety. Um that was probably one of the most difficult periods of my life in which I and I'm I'm you know I'm I'm pretty hard on myself a lot of mm-hmm. the time which I think you know kind of exasperated the things I was going through but I feel like I failed in that semester on so many accounts. Um and it was actually through EWB by writing through the failure report that I started right. to um unpack that failure understand what happened and then figure out how to learn from it and move Mm -hmm. forward um and interestingly enough i think ewb at that point in publishing the failure report had usually done stories around impact or the ngo space or kind of like their work in the field and not so much personal stories from people within their community uh but you know the long story short the, the failure for me was um a failure to take care of myself in a in a difficult semester. Yeah. Uh, I recognized I was struggling with school, um, 
struggling with my mental health, struggling like extracurricularly. I just didn't feel like mm-hmm. I was myself or operating at my best self. And despite that, I didn't know how to take care of myself or how to seek help or how mm-hmm. to um, get myself out of that rut. Uh, mm-hmm. And so what that looked like, you know, just on, on, on the surface, um, a lot of days lying in bed, not really wanting to get out of bed and, mm-hmm. and, and do anything. <laughs> a lot of time spent on my phone or like mm-hmm. on YouTube or on Netflix mm-hmm. and just like not really reaching out to people or going to mm-hmm. class or doing uh, all of the things I should have been doing at, mm-hmm. at school. Uh, and so as you'd expect, grades kind of tanked. Um, I didn't feel like I was doing as well or being as reliable in some of my extracurricular activities be it EWB, mm-hmm. Bridges to Prosperity, or any of the other things I was involved with at the time. Uh, and so overall, I just felt like a lesser version, a, a shell of, of mm-hmm. myself. And so, the, but the the thing, you know, it, the thing that allowed me to get out of that was one, the semester ending, and it's like mm-hmm. having all of that pressure mm-hmm. released. Uh, but then it was only later in that year that I was able to then, you know, write about it through the the failure report at EWB. Right. Um, and and reflect on it and really kind of understand what was going on. And I think it came down to a couple of things for me. It was like one, recognize, one recognizing the, the state that I was in. Um, and then two, being able to um, not be as, as, as hard on myself and just say, hey, this, you know, it's okay to not feel great, but there's work that you can do to make yourself feel better, be it seeking the the right amount of help or just like proactively taking care of my mental health by spending time outside or going to the gym or playing sports or you know just all all these things you can do to proactively take care of yourself Mm -hmm. um and uh and and I think the one thing I did as well was like I I I put the blame on everything else but myself like oh second year anxiety super super hard or or I'm living in a basement apartment and I don't have any light or I don't have um, you know, so that like my living situation maybe isn't the best or, oh, it's like, it's super cold in Toronto and the weather's, you know, and like, you know, not to say that these things didn't contribute to it, but mm-hmm. it's also to say that there are certain things in my, con- that are mm-hmm. in my control that I can do to um, mitigate against those. Mm-hmm. So not to say, and, and so in, in all of that, you know, it's not to say that I've never kind of gone to that place again or gotten to that state, but I think each time I feel myself getting there. I can like now proactively, I'm aware of it. I can proactively take steps to uh, make sure that the impact isn't as bad and that, you know, no matter what's going on, I can take, you know, just take a day, relax, reassess, Mm -hmm. reprioritize as well because above all my own personal mental um, and physical health is is the most important thing Mm -hmm. and then reset and keep going. Um, And, you know, it's, it's actually I was talking to a, I was talking to a friend about it today because I'm now also in a period of time where I'm feeling a, a little bit stressed with school and assignments and all of that mm-hmm. um, and she the, what, what she said to me was you know when when you're in a state of stress your uh your your mindset goes back to the default of things that you do to cope and th- those might not be the positive things that you want to do mm-hmm. to cope for me that's the you know, lying in bed all day or like going to YouTube and Netflix and just like procrastinating and all of that. Yes. And, you know, that'll happen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's okay. Because when, when when your mind goes to that state, it just kind of reverts back to its old mechanisms. But mm-hmm. um, so, you know, 
be patient with yourself. Take mm-hmm. uh, take time. But it's I think for me, I found some things that are helping me proactively take care of myself to make sure that I don't go into those spaces as, as much as possible. At least I don't like burn myself out. I think yeah. is the is the key thing. Burnout is the the, the key word there that I think was like a, a catalyst for for yeah. a lot of us. I never thought I would say this, but I think that's a great failure. <laughs> a great story of failure, right? Like how kind of you learned. I think, yeah, we're all gonna have lows, so yeah. we might as well learn from them. <laughs> yeah. So um we're kind of curious about how you navigated like all of your experiences. Okay, actually, big picture. So students in engineering science, you know, when they go in, mm-hmm. the big opportunity for doing international work is SROP. Um, yeah. So the, I think it's Exceptional Summer Research Opportunity Program um, yeah. for doing international research at a partner institution. Like that is generally the scope that most students are introduced to of global work and kind of what that mm-hmm. means. Um, so we're curious about how you navigated your university and postgrad experience to pursue your international work um, that are kind mm-hmm. of, you know, it's, there's a bit of research I noticed, but also a ton of just like working for organizations that deliver infrastructure and also deliver other like system management tools um, mm-hmm. and how you how you kind of knew to where to look or how you learn how to know where to look and also opportunities for students to understand where to begin or get involved, even if it's not like there's always a first step to getting there. It might not be getting the mm-hmm. job, but maybe starting to learn about it. Um, and I actually thought we could begin with maybe some course recommendations you had for electives. I feel like yeah. the limelight is often on, um, I know like the business certificate and the business minor are really popular, but I know the global development certificate also is um, a pretty strong option. And, and you talk a little bit about CGen courses being really great. So anything, anything you would recommend from there and your thoughts and reflections from those courses? A hundred percent. Um, before before I answer that question, I'll just make a plug from the previous conversation. Um, I can send you the link to the uh, failure report story that I wrote for EWB about that, I guess, tough time in second year and my reflections from it and the learnings I got out of that, um, in case anybody wants to, to, to read that as well. Uh, oh, but yeah, thank you. On to opportunities as it relates to to global development for uh, university students at, at U of T in engineering. Uh, yeah, interesting that you mentioned Ezra because I, I also applied to that in first year, I guess it would have been, uh, and my my grades weren't up to scratch to to get that. You know, that, as you can imagine, super competitive program mm-hmm. um, in a super super competitive, I guess, opportunity in a super competitive program. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess. Zooming out to the big picture, um, first looking at uh, opportunities. I think for me, it 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 all came from extracurriculars. Mm-hmm. Um, looking for clubs that offered experiences and you know ran initiatives mm-hmm. that I felt in some way or another, local or abroad, would. Right help me understand how to navigate this space that is global development and I think EWB was a club that gave me the best opportunity to do that Mm -hmm. even in all of the initiatives that I was doing locally they were all building my understanding and my experience of this of this sector and of this field and so just as an example 
my first two years in EWB were in the youth engagement portfolio. And at youth engagement, our, our, our kind of goal, our mandate was to engage Canadian youth, specifically high school students, in this topic of international development and change their mindsets about how development should be done. You know, the, the, the thinking being that if you get them early in high school, then when they come into university, it can be better prepared to kind of take on these opportunities and do it in a more thoughtful and intentional way. And, and in doing that, that's where I really got to, um, you know, hone in and, and strengthen my foundational knowledge about how development should be done, you know, from an EWB perspective, um, that systems thinking approach and everything like that, designing workshops and activities and case studies all of that around how um, how people like ourselves in, in Canada at U of T can engage in development. And that, you know, those two years, I, I didn't do anything abroad in, in those two years, but that just gave me that knowledge and foundation that I needed um, to, to do that kind of work. Uh, in, my, in my fourth year with EWB, I was engaged in like their policy and advocacy work. And so that's getting more at designing policies and campaigns to get the Canadian government to better engage in, in international development. Again, did not set a foot, at least in doing that work, did not set a, a foot abroad, but still got a, a good understanding of these issues to be able to speak about them um, and, and develop a position on them, which is very helpful then in, in pursuing any type of work in this field later on. So all of which to say, you can build out your profile for international work while staying local and mm -hmm. I think especially when you're a university student the opportunities to go abroad the opportunities to go abroad one but then the opportunities to go abroad in the development context and to do development type work uh, are limited I think there isn't as high a demand for uh, I guess students looking to gain experience in this field just because I think a lot of the, the social enterprises or like the businesses that you work with are like too busy figuring out their problems themselves in a challenging context to be able to then mentor and provide coaching to uh, mm -hmm. an undergraduate student. So the opportunities are there, they're just very limited. And so building out that foundational knowledge uh, at school is probably the best thing you can do so that you can get experience afterwards. Yeah. And then going on to what you're saying then about the courses, um, that's another great way that you can do that. And so for me, um, right from right from my when I found out about it, which was probably the second year, the Global Engineering Certificate uh, was directly in my radar. Um, mm -hmm. I, so I will plug that heavily. And anyone mm -hmm. at U of T Engineering who's interested in global development should definitely get that certificate under your belt. Um, not only for like, you know, your resume, just like to have that there, but the stuff you'll learn in those courses are super valuable and thinking about how you as an engineering student can then pursue a career in development. The, uh, the two professors who, who taught me, Amy Bilton and Ahmed Mahmoud, are amazing individuals, both with kind of their own interesting uh, experiences and paths in this, in this space from a research perspective, but also from a practical perspective. Um, the two courses that I took, I forget, I think APS 400 and 420, they're like technology and design for global development. Um, really interesting. One from a, a very technical perspective, like how can you design a solution to meet, a, a, to address a problem in, in a developing country? And, mm -hmm. and again, very technical engineering design process, all of that versus um, uh, Ahmed's course is more uh 
it's more international development e um, more similar to maybe something that uh, an international development student might take but then again from an engineering perspective so you get that development theory but then you also get to apply uh, think about it from an engineering perspective of how business and technical solutions can can work in there yeah APS uh, so to, 420 was um like I just had my I think first class uh, last oh week. yeah 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 and <laughs> he started with this I showed Meisha to that triangle of like how engineers design <laughs> I got a lot top. of messages <laughs> a lot of- <laughs> about that course i just keep spamming her as i was watching the lecture um but the tra- it's amazing right it's amazing yeah and it's such an amazing guy like the way he, he's so honest and he like deep he cares about student as well like oh, encourages like office yeah. hour um but yeah and then so going back to the triangle he was saying how like engineers design for on the top 10 percent of the pyramid that's yeah. like how, what we mm-hmm. ended up doing like after you're graduating like especially if just working in um company within within Canada but so I think the course he's gonna try to stretch the course on how to like focus on you know the other night the 90 percent of of mm-hmm. the pyramid so I thought that was yeah. that was a really cool thought yeah mm-hmm. bottom bottom of the, the pyramid of design yeah. 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 Um, yeah yeah no it's it's a really both of them are really great courses and then there's the elective course which I think that's probably the biggest barrier to taking the certificate is finding time to, to do one of the electives. I did it in the summer of my PY and the course that I took was um, Introduction to International Relations. Very different and a very big change of pace compared to the engineering courses that I took because it's mm-hmm. all about the history of international relations, theory of international relations. My favorite lecture in that course obviously was the one around international development. So there I was like, aha, I can raise my hand because I know how much Canada <laughs> yeah. gives uh, to yes. development every year. And I know yeah. who the big players are and all the big institutions, like, yeah. again, through EWB. But I, I think that was also a, a cool uh, course, again, to get a more arts and science, uh, social science perspective uh, on this issue, which is important if you yeah. want to mm-hmm. um, do any sort of work in the field. But Ahmed's point that you were mentioning about doing work that you know, isn't designed for the top 10%, but, you know, mm-hmm. designed for the bottom bottom of the pyramid. That if, if, you know, there's one thing that I can hope to get out of this and just like encourage every student to do is to pursue that alternative career path that right. is focused more on the, the marginalized in Canada or abroad, um, you know, wherever. But, you know, do use your engineering work to tackle social issues and mm-hmm. to, uh, to, to meet the needs of the people whose, need, whose needs aren't met by our current systems, our current infrastructure, our current um, mm-hmm. engineering design practices. So, you know, the question you can ask yourself is maybe like, who, who are the people who I can benefit through my work who mm-hmm. aren't being benefited from the system that we currently have? It? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So going to, I guess, post-grad experience a little bit on taking that pursuing the alternative career path was there any like challenge challenges you kind of have to make like when you make that decision like was Mm -hmm. it particularly challenging for you or do you just like know that's what you wanted to do and was there something that you have to kind of like give up on Mm -hmm. versus going to trade off yeah what Mm -hmm. was the trade-off yeah um 
so I I had no idea what I wanted to do or kind of how mm-hmm. I wanted to pursue this field coming out of undergrad. And so yeah. mm-hmm. the the opportunity that was available to me was a, a fellowship with Engineers Without Borders yeah. in Uganda. And so that, right. you know, this, that connection with the community was was made that path kind of right in yeah. front of me. The trade-off, the, the biggest trade-offs, I think, were kind of um, stability, both financially yeah. and just like geographically mm-hmm. um i i look at some of my friends who pursued i guess more traditional paths in like engineering or in consulting yeah, um right. and seeing uh seeing how they've already like kind of progressed their careers and they got you know promotions and mm-hmm. um everything like that it's a, and, and, and you know kind of how they're already kind of building up their lives and able to kind of set themselves up um, right I guess financially with, with, with a good foundation it's it's a bit not like I guess what what's what would the right word like tempting isn't the right word but you know mm-hmm. you, you can clearly see the what, what you're giving up um, mm-hmm. and you know I'm and as, you know I, I think as well it's important to recognize that there is a certain amount of privilege that comes into being able to pursue yeah. a, a career like this and like take on that that kind of uh, instability uh, yeah. But that that for me is the, probably the 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 biggest trade off I've yeah. uh, had to see. But it's I but, you know I I think that being said, I don't think I would have been happy pursuing that type of career path at least right out of the gate, mm-hmm. um, out of undergrad, uh, especially for my PY. I realized you know while I enjoyed working at an engineering consultant firm in Canada, it just didn't like yeah. my fire the mm-hmm. the lack of social impact in my work was very apparent and mm-hmm. I missed it and I knew mm-hmm. that in any work I wanted to do I would need that in order for it to feel to feel fulfilling mm-hmm. uh, and I think that desire is probably what pushed me uh, oh. the strongest to go into this direction and I think the the question then that I'm asking myself as well is you know not only what am I best at, not only where can I have the most impact, but then also how can I do that in a way that's also financially sustainable? Mm-hmm. Yeah, awesome. When you, um, so after you graduated, what was your new grad role? Um, if you kind of can go back to that. Yeah, um, so I, my, my role right after graduation was as a data analyst at a, a social enterprise called Viamo in Kampala. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what Viamo tries to do is uh, essentially give people in rural areas who might not have access to other technologies or access mm-hmm. to information through, say, radio or television or Internet. Uh, they try to give them access to information through their mobile phones. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the platform of the specific service that Viamo I was working on is called the 321 service, mm-hmm. uh, which is a platform that you can call in by dialing 321 on your phone. And, mm-hmm. you know, you get access to information on news weather, agriculture, healthcare. Uh, there's some, some fun games that they have on there as well. Pretty much mm-hmm. any information that they feel like would be useful and relevant to someone uh, living in a rural area in one of the many countries that they operate. And so I was on the back end, kind of you know analyzing the platform, um, looking at user experience and trying to find ways to improve that. And then mm-hmm. um, running pilots and experiments to understand our impact and finding ways that we could increase our impact as well. Mm-hmm. What did you, like, what was maybe some, the major insights you had from that work? 
like designing um, technology for rural and developing mm-hmm. country countries. Yeah, it was that role in particular was very interesting because there are many aspects of Viamo that involve working with stakeholders, be it the ultimate people who will use our service or our right. end users, or you know, working with with governments or development partners to design the content that then goes onto our platform mm-hmm. uh, that, that our users listen to. Uh, but in my role as a data analyst, I was very, very far removed from all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think the, the stuff that people, I guess, might most traditionally be interested in or most traditionally focus on in that work was kind of not what I was aimed to do. But that being said, the work that I did get to do looking at the large volumes of data that came in from all of our users. We had like, I want to say hundreds of millions of calls coming into uh, our our platform every day across like 16 countries. Um, It produced a lot of data. And my job was to then sift through all of that data to understand kind of where, um, where the holes are, where what people are listening to, where are people getting stuck on the platform that's kind of preventing them from, from navigating through. Because again, I think a lot of the people we serve might not that might not be the most mobile literate people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so how, how can you design it in such a way to just like to, to bypass any of those challenges? And so the, the biggest insight I took away from, from that role is like the power of data driven decision-making. Like mm-hmm. when I think a lot of development organizations struggle from just like not, you know, how challenging it can be to collect data on your impact, on your beneficiaries. Uh, it's a, it's a bit like monitoring and evaluation is a key component, but also a costly component of any um, development exercise. But at Viamo, that was kind of embedded in, like the data collection was embedded into our service and we, we got a lot of data. And so for me, someone who's like kind of foraying into the field of data and analytics mm-hmm. um having that much data to just work with in my first job was super um gratifying like it, it, it helped me grow a lot in that role but then also just um demonstrated to me in real time like just how much data empowers you to improve your service understand your users and just increase your impact um in as, as an organization yeah, for sure. I think the perception, I mean, in global development, I think there are some sites that um, I've heard where, or even um, like I've watched this TED talk by Hans Rosling, which I think started this mm-hmm. idea in my mind about how our global, our perceptions of global communities is actually so different from what actually it is. Like there's a, the perception, it seems like the development is so different. Um, and what he did in this talk is he um, had the audience, I think, raise their hands um, based on like they kind of voted on, you know, which two, which of these two countries, which one do you think is um, poorer or which one has like this, do they have below this, you know, GDP or above this GDP or what is the maternal death rate? And it was all multiple choice so they could vote really easily. And they were wrong, like less than mm-hmm. more than 50% of the time. And the really funny thing is that, you know, this is funny because if I gave this to a monkey, they would be correct 50% <laughs> of the time. They would like, if you give me a banana, <laughs> mm-hmm. they would choose it. Like, because this is um this is kind of a a random chance for them um they're going to be the correct 50 percent of the time and you were worse than a monkey <laughs> and that was mm-hmm. it and that was the intro um but there are lots of website that websites that try to 
bridge that gap and kind of like shaping like properly not probably like fixing essentially the global perception of what the Mm -hmm. rest of the world looks like whether that be by um I think Jennifer you sent me one where uh gap minder that's uh where gap minder minder. yeah I know I spent Mm -hmm. like hour hour on it after I I think it was uh yeah APS 420 uh so I was introduced it last week and um I went through a deep dive (laughs) into yes like what's available on there yeah the one that I was on recently um, was, was it Mind the Gap? It was the one where uh, the, the pe- people of various incomes across the world, we could see what their homes were like based on their income yeah. on a monthly basis. And it was all around the world. And um, it was kind of interesting to see all like what the real spectrum was. Yeah. of all of all countries do you remember the site the name of that site jennifer so that's all part of like um gap minder right? oh it's yeah. still gap so minder oh it's like a yeah, step, another t- yeah, part of the, yeah okay yeah so if you just Although, go on yeah I, was gonna say, uh, I love gap minder and i guess for anyone who doesn't know what gap minder is it's like a website that has really powerful data visualizations i think mm-hmm. developed by a guy named hans rosling and his team that tell powerful stories about the development context or the development landscape around mm-hmm. the world uh and then the, the the part that you're talking about i think i i just found out about recently as well is the forget what it's called but it just shows dollar street pov- dollar street, dollar street. yes yeah tells you what poverty looks like or, yeah. or what life looks like at different income levels and and also different a friend countries of mine yeah. in different countries mm-hmm. around the world a friend of mine recommended a book to me called factfulness which i think is also by hans rustling which takes that dollar street website kind of puts it into a book and uh explains some of those figures and those pictures in a bit more detail but mm-hmm. super interesting and i think to your point as well it's like not only i think it's not only important to change people's perceptions around what different parts of the world look like uh but i think it's also important to change people's perceptions around what development work quote unquote looks right. like because i don't think I think there are a lot of people who would be surprised to hear that sitting at a desk, being a code monkey uh, behind the computer is development work. Because mm-hmm. that, that, right, that's what yes. my job mm-hmm. at was. I was in, an, yeah. in our office, which is, you know, to be fair, like a house that we turned into office. So it was fairly mm-hmm. relaxed. But sitting behind a computer, living and breathing in our SQL database mm-hmm. every day. Mm-hmm. I didn't really impact with our, I, I didn't interact with our, donors very much i didn't interact with our end users very much um it was all just behind the computer but mm-hmm. you know for me i could very clearly see the impact of our work and what you know the the people it was benefiting um the person who's sitting right next to me every day was our, our marketing and communications person they right. were sourcing stories about our impact every mm-hmm. day across the world so you can really see and hear the stories of the people who are benefiting mm-hmm. from our service and so even if my work isn't the most kind of closely related or the most uh, adjacent to the impact, you still see it, you still feel it. And it's, it's a part of the ethos of the organization that you work with, which for me is, I think, the most important part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This theme of um, like, you know, we, we talk, we're talking a lot about evidence and data driven and effectiveness. Like those are all kind of tied into using um, what is not the typical stance in development, like using um, effectiveness as a lens for how we do development or how we how we are philanthropic as individual people. 
Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit, you know, we, even if, um, like explore a little bit about like the effect of altruism, which is all about this, like, mm-hmm. how can we, how do it, which is a school of thought and, um, Peter Singer, who is a, who is a philosopher talks about this also. Um, and he wrote a book about this and William McCaskill, who is also actually at Oxford. Yeah. So he's, he also co-founded this school of thought and made it more of a social movement, which is, mm-hmm. I mean, I really like philosophy as, as like using it to, to live well. And I think that's, a, I mean, effective altruism is a really great example of that. And it's all about um, the idea of like getting the bang for your buck, but for philanthropy. And a lot of um, organizations like GiveWell have tried to establish research initiatives to figure out which um, development um, organizations or charities or not-for-profits do the best work with um, the, the resources that they have. So people who want to do well, do well the best in the best way possible. Um, and then there are other ones like open philanthropy and whatnot. Um, and another website that might be helpful for career development is 80,000 hours also founded by the philosopher William McCaskill um, about using effective altruism. They don't say it outright, but it is effective altruism mm-hmm. um, to think about like, what are the issues in the world that need my attention and might have low hanging fruit type of problems and that I could actually do because I would be a great fit for them. So like in that lens, I mean, like we, I'd like kind of like to talk about anything maybe that you've been exploring and like what you like about this um, as maybe like a life theme for yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I only like been, uh, you know, adjacent to effective altruism, like more recently, like I heard about the term, I think probably when I arrived at Cambridge uh, and it's only like a couple of days ago that a friend of mine was reading a book on effective altruism. Uh, and just kind of started talking to me about in, in more depth about what, what the concept is. And for me, the part that resonates the most is around figuring out how to get the most bang for my buck from my career uh, and choosing where I work and what I want to do. Uh, because the, the guiding questions for me so far in, in figuring out what I want to do in my career is, you know, first, what am I interested in? Just mm. global development. Uh, secondly, what am I good at or kind of what is my, my sphere or realm of expertise um, you know, from school and from my professional experiences that is becoming infrastructure and you know, a little bit more and more about like data and how that can be used in, mm-hmm. in infrastructure development context. Um, and then you know, the third question has been, how do I fit those two things together? And I think the, the thing where effective altruism comes in, especially from a global development standpoint is then, mm-hmm where can I work that will then allow me to have that greatest impact? Because at least from, from an infrastructure perspective, the thing that clicked um, when I was working at, at my, my PY in Toronto is that you know, working, at, working on infrastructure projects in Canada, for example, or any high-income country, is, taking, uh, is augmenting a system, an infrastructure system that's operating at 95% capacity or 95% of its potential, right. just pushing it up as close to 100 as possible. Versus in many low and middle income countries, the infrastructure systems just aren't there. If they are there, they're not functioning to their full potential. Mm-hmm. Uh, so say if they're working at 50%, how can we get that up to 80%, uh, 80, 90%, even 100% capacity? And so the, the potential gains that you're able to have, the potential improvements are much greater. Uh, and then as well, the people who you're impacting are often the most 
kind of more marginalized and most vulnerable uh, or people who are closer to, to poverty and have lower standards of living when you're operating in, in a global development or low middle income country context. Right. And so whereas in, in Canada, our infrastructure is benefiting people who are you know, mostly um, well off isn't the right word, mm-hmm. but you know, doing okay for themselves and able mm-hmm. to kind of live above their, their means or live mm-hmm. at their means. Whereas in, in global development or like developing country context, that isn't the case. And so if you can, by, by developing the foundational infrastructure in those countries, you can help lift a lot of people out of poverty and help uh, provide people the foundation that they need to then live a fulfilling life. And so think about effective altruism, that's, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading a lot more into it because yeah. I hopefully that can like help guide that type of thinking but me too <laughs> yeah, I don't right? know what to either yeah because it's, it's but I think that's you know from from an effective altruist perspective that's kind of getting the bang for your buck that's kind of how I see it and so I'm not I'm I'm interested as to like whether you know that theory any books I read into it will confirm the way I've approached it or just cause me to throw away everything I've thought up to this point and uh, have another existential crisis <laughs> I think this is a good intro for us to begin our lightning rounds. So Mm -hmm. um, for this, I think I will do this this time. And I'll just ask you these questions um, that we're going to ask you to uh, answer in kind of succinct way possible. I'll I'll try not to respond. I have a propensity to respond. Um, I started a conversation (laughs) Uh, and we'll just finish them up. If you, uh, if you want to pass, you can say pass Uh, and that's it. Are we good to go? Jennifer? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so the first question is, what are three resources that you think every student should take advantage of? First is ourworldindata.com. Great website with a lot of oh my God. <laughs> on so many different issues. Have you used yeah. it before? Yeah, I think Maisha introduced me to that probably. Oh, yes, I did. Okay. Yeah, because yeah, Jennifer, she's, she's, she goes through phases and the current phase is like data visualization and data <laughs> and anything. And she yeah. bought books from Visual Capitalist. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's a good one. Uh, the, second, the second is, I'll say edX, but really any online learning platform. Um, there's paid courses on there, but also a lot of free courses on there. Uh, and when during the period of the pandemic, when I was out of a job, found a lot of great courses and content on there um, that helped me out. And I'll just plug Vox as a third one, not necessarily a resource, mm-hmm. but a great source of news and just like yeah. good ideas around different issues that are, are happening around the world. Um, oh, yeah. sorry, I'll add a fourth one because thinking of Vox also made me think of the world development reports that are put out by the world bank um every year from what i've seen is a different topic um the one on 2021 was data for better lives and so there's i think that's a really good resource to see you know thinking of a lead development organization about certain topics uh and how they fit into development great thank you 
Um, we can cut this out later, but uh, one that I actually thinking on the world sphere, the World Economic Forum produces pretty mm-hmm. good content about what they see as the future. And the reason I pay attention to it is because it's kind of it's like this international committee of the most powerful companies in the world. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it's interesting to see the perspective that's coming from that alliance. Um, mm-hmm. so that, that's if if you ever like have a, have time to look at where we're headed. <laughs> I'm subscribed to like a World Economic Forum blog or newsletter. And it's one of, out of all the newsletters I get, it's sadly one of the ones that I neglect, um, but also pay it a bit more attention. It seems like some more interesting stuff. Yes. Yeah. Especially they have, um, even if you just look at the milestones, like their predictions for every year, mm-hmm. that's, that's kind of interesting. Next question. What movie, book, or podcast do you recommend? Don't Look Up, a movie that recently came out on Netflix, uh, mm-hmm. Jennifer Lawrence and Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, a very, very fun and interesting take on the impending climate disaster. Mm-hmm. Next question. Uh, what life-changing item did you buy as a university student for less than $50? A journal. And specifically, sorry, let me see if I can pull it out. Three journals, to be exact. <laughs> a five-minute journal, a one-line-a-day journal, and a productivity journal. Mm-hmm. Uh, these came out, at, the three of them came out at slightly more than $50. But if I had to pick two, the five-minute journal, great way to start your day with reflection and um, affirmations. Mm-hmm. And to end your day, again, with uh, gratitude and reflection. And then one-line-a-day one sentence every day succinctly describing something that you felt or an important moment. Mm-hmm. Um, it lasts you five years. After every year, you come back to the same page, see where you were the year before, add to it so that oh. next year you can see where you were as well. Very, very cool concept. That's great. I'm three <laughs> months in, uh, and I'm looking forward to this time next year when I get to see. And so oh the yeah, one line a day journal and the five minute journal, both available on Indigo. Mm, wow i love indigo (laughs) (laughs) i think me and maisha started this thing at the beginning of year because we share a lot of thoughts and messages and like we like my christmas gift to her was um i think uh, a journal that we each both keep and whenever we have a thought we just Mm -hmm. like write it out and we're gonna exchange it at the end of the year (laughs) like like, journal is like totally our thing so that's why we're so excited That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, the, the next article I have coming out on my Medium page yeah. is about these three journals. Oh, my um, God. So, oh, my but God. Like, so I meta. Love, so I, I, love, I love journals. So, yeah, yeah, if you have any journal ideas or just good journaling tips, let me know because I'm always on Oh, the yes. Podcast. Wow, yeah. Wow, we have to talk about that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <no. laughs> the next question. Uh, what are unexplored or underrated resources for anyone uh, and not just students? I'm not sure how underrated this is, but I think definitely underexplored or underutilized, but the people around you. And so mm-hmm. comes down to networking, but not even networking. I think this mm-hmm. is striking up a conversation with a random stranger. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think especially in Canada or in like a big city like Toronto, we tend to be very uh, reclusive and 
keep to ourselves and it's almost mm. taboo to strike up a conversation mm. with that random stranger across from you be it right. you know on campus at, at U of T engineering or just anywhere else in the city right um, and it comes down to that fear of failure and that fear of rejection but yes. there's a vast I think it's powerful the vast amount of human experience and knowledge is just like available to us at our fingertips but <laughs> I like many other people don't take advantage of it and so mm-hmm. striking up a conversation with a random person random mm-hmm. stranger or even someone you know and you know mm-hmm. digging deeper into their brain knowledge and experience next question what's the biggest area of growth you've experienced during your during university uh, I think it, it comes back to that uh, failure that I, I mentioned earlier. And so the biggest area of growth for me has been uh, learning how to take care of myself, knowing when I'm approaching burnout, um, and then knowing how to either prevent that from happening or take care of myself when I do feel like it's happening. Uh, and I think the biggest thing there is uh, positive self-talk and self-love and mm-hmm. self-forgiveness mm-hmm. Uh, all the mushy gushy stuff that we love to hear <laughs> um, but you know learning not to be too hard on myself yes that's great um, next question what has been your most rewarding experience working in the faculty of applied science and engineering as a student <laughs> um, engineers without borders mm-hmm. Biggest, biggest learnings, growth, transformational experiences, all in one way, shape, or form were tied to my experience at the the U of T chapter of PWB. Uh, I think without joining that club or without that club being there and the opportunities that I got through it, I wouldn't be the person that I am today, mm-hmm. uh, nor would my kind of thinking around the space of global development be where it is. And so I, I credit a lot of that growth to, uh, to EWB. Mm-hmm. And what would you be doing if not this? <laughs> <laughs> what would I be doing if not this? I have no idea. I'm, I, you know, I might be somewhere at a bank doing mm. actual finance or mm. uh, business of, of something. I might actually... Actually, no. If I wasn't doing this, I'd be an economist because I think economics is so cool. I've always wanted to dive into it a lot more, but I I just haven't had the opportunity to. Um, But I think macroeconomics especially is so interesting. Like It's like the strings and levers that help in many ways a a country run uh, and determine the extent to which you're able to achieve development outcomes or not. And so like how you pull those levers mm-hmm. um, to, to, to kind of promote development is something really interesting. Like, and, and Jeffrey Sachs is a really interesting economist out of Columbia, I think, at the Earth Institute, I think it's called. Um, really, really interesting thinker around development. And he's like one of you know, many big development thinkers as well. Um, but he's a, he's a great example of just kind of how you can use economics to help countries get out of very difficult situations. Mm. thank you and last question what is your favorite quality about yourself I love this question again going back to to self-love my favorite quality about myself is 
probably my enthusiasm and, and kind of infectious positive energy. Mm-hmm. Um, I love to enjoy life. I love to find the positivity out of situations and also love to make a fool out of myself, uh, which I, I think propagates to other people in, in many ways and can, can spread that joy uh, and, and that positivity. And so I, I value my ability to, to do that to be positive and make other people also feel positive as well. Thank you. I love that. I think actually this is really similar to what I say about me. Like, I feel like I'm obsessed with life sometimes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like I just really love a lot of things. And I think that can all be kind of gathered neatly into this umbrella of life. Um, So I really appreciate that answer. Um, so now we're done the lightning round. This concludes that, um, our, this is kind of finishing up the episode and asking you, um, summarizing questions. What would you, uh, define, uh, as success for yourself and, uh, further for that, from that, since you're in development, um, engineering for good. Mm -hmm. Success for myself is and i'll steal a page from uh i think it was matthew mcconaughey in one of his exception speeches uh but success for myself is being better tomorrow than i was today uh feeling like i am progressing towards uh, a goal or one of the many goals that i've set for myself mm-hmm. um and you know little by little taking some step to to get better to improve because i think if you're not going forwards you're going backwards um, so that's what success for myself looks like in terms of engineering for good and what that looks like. I think it's going beyond the technical and looking at the social impact of the work that you're doing, mm-hmm. specifically amongst the most vulnerable um, and, and marginalized groups in your society and seeing mm-hmm. how it impacts them. From a development perspective, that might look like the most low-income groups. Um, from a general engineering perspective, I think that looks at racialized groups. Um, that looks at um, LGBT, LGBTQ uh, groups. Uh, looks at gender um, and, and all of the other kind of intersection, intersectional identities that make up uh, who we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so seeing all of the different ways that we might be positively or negatively impacting those groups and you know, maximizing the positive and minimizing the negative. And one actually, one example that comes to mind is uh, um, Deborah Raji, who is an XI 28 plus PY yes. graduate in, in my class as well. The work that she's doing around bias in AI, I think is a really cool example of that, like taking an emerging uh, field, yeah. uh, recognizing a social issue within, within it, and mm-hmm. using kind of her, dedicating her time and effort to, to tackle that. Uh, mm-hmm. And finding cool initiatives uh, like that is what engineering for good looks like. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah, Deborah Raji, she's on our list of people we really want to talk to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and next question. Uh, this is big, like looking forward. What are you excited for in 2022 or the future in general? Actually, from a personal standpoint, or like, should I bigger, bigger picture in the world kind of thing? 
maybe bigger picture and how you, and then relate it back to the personal standpoint. Okay, cool. Mm, 2022. It would be, I would be remiss not to mention COVID at some point um, and just the, the impact that that's kind of having on the world. I think I'm very fortunate because despite COVID, I think I've had a lot of significant opportunities and transformational um, experiences in my life despite right. COVID. Um, getting my, my dream job in Copenhagen, being able to move to the UK to start this master's program. Uh, but I think I can see the, the many ways that COVID has impacted other people's lives and almost stalled or stagnated it or just kind of limited uh, opportunities that people had. Uh, and then as well, from a, from a development standpoint, I think there's many, there's many initiatives, organizations uh, that are doing really awesome work that's you know, promoting global development and, and reducing inequalities and tackling poverty that have just mm -hmm. been significantly impacted and slowed down by COVID. Right. Um, and so I'm looking forward to not necessarily an end to the pandemic because I think Omicron has taught us that that's naive to almost mm -hmm. think that it'll just disappear. But I'm looking forward to a, a return to a normal in which um, we're able to continue to find innovative solutions to tackle these pressing problems of our time. Right. Um, and, you know, in a way that, and towards a time where I think developing countries are able to get the vaccines that they need um, and, and, and get the testing infrastructure that they need, everything like that to enable them to also get to a state of normal um, mm -hmm. not too long after uh, the rest of the world is able to yes. do so. When it comes to your master's degree, since you mentioned it, we haven't talked a lot about it, but what are you excited <laughs> about um, what you can do with that eventually if you're going to be graduating in 2022? Yeah. Um, and it's biggest... sustainable development? Is that correct? Yeah. Engineering okay. for sustainable development. Exactly. Okay. The, the thing that I found most rewarding about my degree so far is the uh, how much they're equipping us to be change agents. And right. so it's equipping us with the knowledge, uh, the tools, um, and then just kind of like the theory about how change is, is delivered to be able to do that. And so I think for me, coming out of this, I'm not exactly sure where I'll end up, both geographically and, you know, what industry or what organization I'll be working for. But I think coming out of this I will know what even with more detail kind of what the more pressing issues that I want to tackle them how I can tackle them and then how to go about creating change within my own personal life to live more sustainably within organizations within the people around me um, how to be that change agent to push myself and push others uh, to, to, to you know also fight this fight towards uh, sustainable development. Mm -hmm. All right, I guess to wrap up this uh, conversation, and do you have any final advice for students who are looking to make an impact globally as an engineer who come into university and this is almost what they want to do or this is area they're still exploring? Uh, what are some advice that you would tell them right now if they're listening to this? Mm -hmm. three things 
come to mind mm-hmm. off the top of my head. First, find a club. Find some extracurricular experience outside of the classroom. It will be immensely valuable to you, even if be it local, be it global. Find yourself a club that will give you the opportunity to put your mind towards any global issue. Mm-hmm. Figure out how to understand it and figure out how you can come up with a solution to tackle it. Uh, and then if you can actually get to the point where you can put that into practice, um, by all means, do it as well. You can start your own club. You can find a club that's already doing that. Engineers Without Borders is a great one. Wink, wink. Uh, but wherever it is, find that extracurricular opportunity. Uh, the second is take CGEN courses. CGEN courses are amazing. Again, talking about building that foundational knowledge and getting that practical experience. Getting it outside of the classroom is the best place, in my opinion. But if you're going to do it inside the classroom, CGEN courses are the way to go. Uh, and thirdly, reflect. Uh, ask yourself constantly, what is it that I'm interested in? What is it that I'm good at? And where am I best suited to work? If you can reflect on those questions on a fairly frequent basis, you'll put yourself in a mindset where you're constantly looking out for those opportunities that will help you answer those questions Be and, and looking out for people who have the experiences that you want, who can then invite you on your path and give you ideas of where to go. Because at the end of the day, you don't know what you don't know. And so if you're not inquisitive, if you're not reflecting constantly, I, I think you're missing out on, on opportunities for yourself to grow and, and find new uh, experiences that'll you know push you along on your journey. Uh, so reflect, ask yourself uh, those three questions. Yeah, great. Um, and CGEN, I realized we didn't define it. It's um, the Center for Global Engineering. And that's yes. the research institute at the University of Toronto, specific to the Faculty of Applied Science and Engineering. Doing some amazing work. Yes, yeah, we're going to link it in our show notes because um, I, I myself haven't explored a bunch about, about it, so we will look into it. Um, and this is a, this a closing. Um, if, if students want to get to know you or they feel like you've resonated with some part of your journey and they really want to talk to you or follow some of your work, um, is there any way they can get in contact with you or, or follow that? Yeah, um, I'll plug the Medium page because a lot of my thoughts on this stuff and other things are on there and will continue to be on there as I uh, unpack my thoughts and dump them onto uh, Word documents. Uh, mm-hmm. But if you want to reach out to me one-on-one and actually have a conversation, email is probably the best way to do that. Uh, mm-hmm. Email is at gmail.com. Uh, I apologize in advance if I'm not very responsive, but be persistent. It might take two, probably not three, but if it does, I'm <laughs> really sorry, but I promise I will get back to you. Um, and yep, yeah, we'll set up a uh, time for a coffee chat. Awesome. Thank you. Um, this was David Boroto on 1% Inspiration. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.